Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is uh, good to have you here. It's good to be gathered together, and I'm excited to uh, look at the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is our 10th week in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, I hope it's been encouraging to you. It's certainly been encouraging to me. Uh, And if you've been with us through that time, I just want to keep kind of bring you up to date if you haven't been here, but if you've been with us, here's kind of what we've talked about. What we discussed is the idea that beginning in chapter one in the book of Ephesians, Paul starts out on this discourse where he wants you to know as a believer in Jesus Christ who you are. He starts with all of the indicatives of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be part of the body of Jesus Christ, to what it is to be part of the family of God. And so his purpose in all of those things is to explain in no uncertain terms what the gospel is, what it forms us to be, and who it, who it makes us to be in Jesus Christ. And beginning about three weeks ago, we dived into chapter 4. And at the beginning of chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we see that word, therefore. And what that's referencing is everything that preceded it. In other words, who you are in Jesus Christ inevitably affects the way that you are going to behave, the way that you are going to live. It's going to inform your very lifestyle. So what we've really been studying over the course of these 10 weeks is what does it mean to be a gospel-centered Christian? If you've noticed, week after week, as we've worked through the pages of the book of Ephesians, there's been a lot of repetition. There's been a lot of repeating, this is who you were, this is who you are, this is who God formed you to be, these are the changes that he brought into your life, this is how he views you. And then Paul goes on this constant repetition, and even going into these chapters, chapters 4 through 6, where Paul begins to define what the transformed life of the Christian looks like, he's going to continually draw your eyes back to the gospel because he wants you to see this connection between the things that we believe, the things that we hold true, the things that we declare about who our God is and how we are then to live. And I'm thankful for that for a lot of reasons, primarily because these are things that I very quickly forget. I'm so encouraged as I look through the pages of scripture to see the example of biblical uh, characters and to see how they interact with one another and how they interact with Jesus Christ. And you see this especially with Peter and with Paul. I identify a lot with Peter because Peter is a guy who functions from just kind of a gut level uh, response to everything. He's like a bug. He just responds to various stimuli and that's just kind of how he functions in his life. And so he's very quick to declare his faithfulness to Christ and declare his devotion to Christ and declare his love for 
for Jesus Christ and saying, I'll even die for you. I'll do anything for you. And then he very quickly forgets who God has intended him to be. And he goes off and does his own thing and has to come back and repent and, re- and realize once again who he is. It's the same thing that we see in Paul. It's what we, what we read about in chapters 6 through 9 uh, of the book of Romans where Paul describes his own life and the struggles that he has. And what I love about all of that is it means that these biblical characters and these biblical authors are just as in need of a reminder of the gospel as I am. And I love that because I think the truth is as soon as we assume the gospel, we have lost the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. There comes a time in the life of a believer or in the life of a church or a denomination or or, or a gathering of Christians in any particular place, there comes a time where there is a temptation to begin to assume what we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to assume that we are all on the same page as it pertains to our beliefs about Jesus Christ. And so instead of explicitly having conversations about what the gospel is and therefore how it impacts the various uh, the, how, how it impacts the various aspects of our lives, we begin to assume that we all mean the same thing when we use the word gospel. And we begin to just go from that point into, into all the other areas of life and society and culture trying to fix problems and address issues and dive into the weeds of things. And the problem with that, at least according to what we pick up from Paul here, is that as soon as you have assumed the gospel, you've lost it. You have forgotten what it is to be a child of God. So we need that constant reminder of what the gospel is so that we don't lose it. Because the problem is, as soon as you assume the gospel of Jesus Christ, the idea that Jesus is God, that he came and lived a perfect life on our behalf, that he died the death that we deserve, that he rose again from the dead, providing new life for his children and and the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. As soon as we assume those things and move on from from that part, Jesus ceases to be a savior and he starts just being an example. Now there's all kinds of reasons that Jesus does rightly serve as an example in our life and we ought to follow that example. But understand this, if Jesus is nothing more to you than an example, that is not a good thing for you, it's a bad thing for you. Because trying to live up to the lifestyle of Jesus without understanding the person of Jesus will crush you. And so whenever I hear somebody who says, man, I love the ideals of Christianity. I love the idea of helping the poor. I love the idea of justice. I love the ideas of mercy and love. I love the idea of turn the other cheek and caring for your neighbor and treating others as you would desire to be treated. But as soon as they have claimed all the mantle of Christianity without claiming Jesus Christ, you have just put an unbelievable burden on yourself that you are unable to personally bear. So Paul will not allow us to forget the gospel. And what he's going to essentially say through the course of these verses is that his desire for us is that gospel language would become gospel lifestyle. That the things that we believe and claim and preach and teach would become the way that we actually live. And this is what he talked about last week when he addressed the idea of what it is to mature as a believer in Jesus Christ. He's, he's, He's comparing it, in fact, to what it is to be a child. And I don't know if you've ever actually watched a little kid as they are trying to learn how to walk. It's a really funny thing because the first time, you know, that they try to take that first step, maybe they've been standing now for a few weeks, they've been leaning on a couch, they've taken one step while they have their body weight resting on something, but the first time that they actually push away from that couch and try to take a step on their own, they're having to think through every little thing that they're doing. 
I've got to put my foot out here and I've got to set it down and I've got to kind of wiggle my hips so that I don't immediately lose my balance, fall on the ground and see them teeter and totter and do all of those things, just trying to maintain their balance. They're having to think through something that is so basic. But what's amazing is you give that same child a few weeks or a few months of practicing that and all of a sudden they're jumping off of the couch and running outside and doing all of those things that kids do. What was once effort for them, what was once a very intentional, purposeful decision to do has now become second nature. And Paul's desire for us as believers and Paul's desire for the Ephesian church is that the gospel would be so central that it would be so focused upon in our gatherings and in our individual lifestyles that it would become the very air that we breathe. That everything we believe and everything we do and everything we teach would be filtered through our understanding of the gospel. And so from here on out, through the remainder of the book, Paul is going to be explaining what growth in maturity in Christ looks like. And here's what's incredible about that is in these verses, what you're actually finding is Paul's explanation of how we change. I mean, you can go into a, into a bookstore, you can look at the self-help uh, books, you can, you, can, you can look through the titles and flip through the pages of those books day in and day out, and what you will find is people attempting to give you an answer on how you can change your life, how you can improve your circumstances, how you can believe better and live better and have a better life as a result. And what Paul is doing in this text is actually explaining what the incredible task is of actually changing. And what I, would, what I would hope that we understand as a foundational belief as we approach this text is that religion alone is equipped to handle this question of how we change. And when I say religion, here's what I mean by that, just so that I'm not misunderstood. If you look in the areas of science or psychology, if you look in virtually any other area of study, what you find is tools and diagnostics for determining what is wrong with the individual. So psychology and science are very helpful in that they can help us determine what is going wrong in someone's mind and someone's attitudes and someone's psychology and someone's belief system. It can identify problems, it can flag markers, it can, it can point to particular issues that are demonstrating themselves in somebody's life. But the problem with those tools is ultimately they have no power inherently to change someone. Because as soon as you walk into the realm of change, what you are presuming is that there is a way that that person ought to live. And science has no ability to tell you how you ought to live. Because as soon as you walk into that realm, you are walking into the area, uh, you are walking into, uh, into the area of faith and spirituality. You are walking into the area of value judgments. I mean, I had this conversation with uh, a group of friends of mine this week, and the idea of the conversation that we were having, we were talking about everything from, from politics to personal morality to various convictions that we had, and, and the conversation as it played out essentially ended, ended this way. It's the idea that everyone in this world, regardless of whether you count yourself to be a religious person or an irreligious person, everyone has a line of behavior at which point they determine something to be wrong. So even the most independent, self-minded person who says, look, as long as you do whatever you want to do, if it doesn't affect me, I'm fine. No matter how much you deeply believe that, there is a line at which you think somebody has crossed into a behavior that is not right. And so as much as someone might cite science 
as their basis for a decision, or they may want to claim some sort of objectivity in the way that they approach their life. The truth is everyone at some point must admit that they're making a value judgment. They are making a determination of what is right and what is wrong. And the question becomes, on what basis are you making that decision? So Christianity may get all kinds of knocks for being backwards or antiquated, It may get all kinds of social labels attached to it. People may view it as as dismissive. They may view it as exclusive. They may view it as all kinds of different things. But what I love about Christianity is it's me declaring in some sense or another that I do not have the answers. I understand the brokenness of my own mind and the brokenness of my own heart and I need help. So whether someone is religious and maintains a particular standard of belief or behavior, or whether they are irreligious and they are condemning that very same standard, understand that both people are engaging in religious behavior. You've crossed the realm into value judgments and right and wrong and morality. So with the Bible as our foundation, with the Bible as our basis, our contention as Christians is that apart from the Holy Spirit-inspired perfect revelation of God, we are ill-equipped to make determinations about what is right and wrong. We are ill-equipped to even recognize the brokenness of our own heart, and therefore we need the authority of God's word to inform our view. And so with all of that being said, Paul begins this morning by contrasting two groups and how they approach and view the world. And so look with me, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, and notice the dark picture that Paul is going to paint for us. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." Now that's a dark picture. By, by, anyone's, by anyone's accounting, what he has just painted is a dark picture. I mean, you look at the very words that he cites. He says, they are darkened. He talks about their confusion, their ignorance, the hardness of their heart, their callousness. I mean, Paul is painting a picture here of a people who are absolutely lost. And notice the language that he uses to determine this. He says, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles. But who is it that Paul is talking to here? He's talking to a group of Gentiles. These are Ephesian Christians. They were ethnic Gentiles and they knew what they'd been saved from. If you want to read in depth more about that, you can read Luke's accounting of the Ephesian conversion in Acts chapter 19 where Paul comes to the Ephesians and he begins to proclaim the gospel to them and spends the next two years of his life with that church. But to put it in brief, Paul comes to these people who are a godless people. Uh, Ephesus was the, center, was the center of worship for a god named Artemis or, or Diana was the alternate name uh, for this goddess. And she was worshipped for all kinds of things, for provision of food, for for, for benefit in labor, for blessing on the city. And so Paul walks into the city and begins to preach and proclaim the gospel. And God works in a miraculous and amazing way. 
Immediately you see miraculous conversions, people turning away from lives of straight up witchcraft and sorcery, turning to Jesus Christ. You see miracles being performed. Acts chapter 19 records the specific incident where it says that a handkerchief that Paul had held was being passed around in the church to heal people of their diseases. I mean, this is wild stuff. I mean, if you have the ability to touch a handkerchief and heal somebody, like, come talk to me, right? We've got a role for you. This is unusual. And in specific, what you find are these people who are caught up in witchcraft, worshiping Diana. They begin to convert to Christianity through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel uh, from Paul. And you see them making decisions that bring them ridicule in their culture, that hurt the bottom line of their own finances, that affect their livelihoods and their standing in their own family. I mean, these people that are doing things that seem self-destructive to the world around them. I mean, one accounting in Acts chapter 19, these people who were formerly sorcerers and, and involved in all kinds of witchcraft gather up their books and they come to the center of the city and they burn these books. And as scholars have run the numbers on what the equivalent amount of money would have been for the worth of those books uh, in today's money, the, the number of books that they burned would have been worth nearly $10 million. I mean, imagine, just imagine Something like that happening today. Where God's work is so incredible in the, in the course of one particular city that people who are involved in all kinds of sin and all kinds of wickedness come together and burn $10 million worth of their property. I mean, we can't even fathom something like that. So when Paul says to this group of Gentiles, don't be like the Gentiles, what he's ultimately saying is you need to not value the things that the Gentiles value. Don't be drawn away again. Don't allow your heart to begin to drift back to the things that you valued before knowing Jesus Christ. And notice also what Paul doesn't say here. Paul doesn't begin to, to give a list of behaviors and tell people to avoid those behaviors, though he is going to get into some more particulars as we move on in the book. But rather what he says is, I want you to not value those same things. Don't hold in your heart the same values as the world around you. So to put this in a, in a way that is abrasive as we come into Independence Day week, something we're celebrating, it would be like Paul coming to us and saying, hey, Americans, don't live like the Americans. I mean, there's something within us that when we hear that just kind of, ugh. See, the point wasn't to to raise up or to criticize any individual culture. What it was intended to do is to say, you are to be different than the world around you. The things that you value, the things that you find worth in, are to be more holistic, more widespread, more spiritual in nature. And he's going to begin to describe what that is, because he says to the Gentile mind, they are disoriented in their thinking. And this phrase that he uses, darkened in their understanding, comes up a couple of other times in Paul's writing, but most explicitly it comes up in Romans chapter 1, where Paul uses the exact same language. And I want you to listen to how he describes this in Romans 1, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking here about all people in all the earth, religious or irreligious, educated or uneducated. He's saying to all people, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And if you continue to read the remainder of chapter 1, what you find is Paul's description of what the darkened heart does. The kinds of behaviors in which the darkened heart participates. And ultimately what he's saying is, look, all you need to do is look around the world that is created. Look around what God has made around you in order to see that there must have been a God who created this. It's really what we sang about this morning in the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, when it says summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. In other words, when you look at the world around you, are you just amazed Are you stunned by the beauty and the integration of what it is that God has made? How amazing is it that there is vast lands that have gone untouched by human hands and yet life still thrives in them? How incredible that God has created a world of such intense beauty. Not a utilitarian world that just manages to get by but a world that is so uniquely beautiful that it creates awe in the heart of the observer. Paul's saying you only need to look at the world to know that there is a God. And the immediate response of so many people is, but look at the world we live in, really. And look at the brokenness of this world. Look at the unjustness of the world. Look at the pain that people are experiencing in this world. How do you see a world like that and still believe in God? Well, the answer to that is a sermon for another day, but to give a quick answer to it, let me just throw this out. If you look at the world as someone who does not believe in a God and does not believe in a creator and you see the brokenness and the unjustness and there is something within you that rises up in righteous anger and indignation at the world you observe, the question needs to come back to you. How did you gain that sense of justice or unjustice? From what within you does a spring of righteousness flow? See, you can only know something is wrong if you have a sense of what is right. And Paul's suggestion in the book of Romans is that the external evidence of a supreme God is reinforced by the internal evidence of God's law being written on your heart. In other words, everything around you and everything within you is screaming out that there is a God who is a creator. And the response of these people, according to Paul, is that they were callous and hard of heart. How do calluses form? How does insensitivity in your skin happen? I had a buddy over in my house a couple weeks ago. Um, he's a welder by trade, and so day in and day out for 20 years, um, he, he interacts with welding machines, and he deals with fire and heat and hot pipes and steam, and everything this dude touches is hot, right? So he's constantly grabbing things that are hot and picking up tools that are hot, and he's working out in the heat. I mean, everything this guy does uh, is, inter- is interacting with fire and interacting with hot metal and those sorts of things. And so it shouldn't have come as a surprise to me, but it did when we were sitting around uh, a fire outside of my house, and he decided just to reach in and grab a burning log in order to adjust it to stoke the fire a little bit. 
Now, it weirded me out, if I'm honest with you, because people ordinarily don't stick their hands in fire, but I just said to him, doesn't that hurt? And he goes, welder's hands, as if it was some sort of magic trick, right? And his point was that after years of picking up all of these hot things, after years of being exposed to heat, it had so deadened his hands that he was able to pick things up. Now, he treated that like it was pretty cool. I'm looking at that going, something's really wrong with your hands. You should probably get that checked out, right? But years of that kind of abrasiveness, years of that kind of treatment created insensitivity. See, when you deny the God who is pursuing and the God who has made himself evident for day after day, month after month, year after year, the Bible is going to say that ultimately what it does is it creates a hardness in your heart. You are no longer able to respond and react the way that you are designed and intended to respond. And ultimately what Paul is going to say is that that led to a life that was alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. And this isn't excused ignorance. This isn't, well, you didn't know better. No, this is an ignorance that is born of a pushing away from what God has made evident. See, what Paul is saying is that to be darkened is to reject what God has made plainly known. Now look how he picks this up in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So Paul says, how do you avoid living this life where you are hopeless and darkened and confused and alienated? He's saying, here's the answer. You learned Christ. Remember, he's talking here to Christians specifically. You learned Christ and not in the academic sense of learning about Jesus Christ. He's not talking here about the head knowledge of who the person of Jesus is. He's talking about the kind of intimate knowledge of a savior that leads people to burn $10 million worth of their belongings because they realize that there is something infinitely more valuable waiting for them. This is something that doesn't just play on the intellectual mind. This is something that affects the will and the heart and the emotions of men and women. And notice how he describes it. I want to point out just a a quick translation thing here. Notice what he says. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now the truth is, as as we look uh, at the way this is translated, and I don't mean to get into a grammar lesson, but if you look at how this is translated from the Greek, that word that is inserted into our English translation about, where you've heard about him, that preposition actually is not there in the Greek. So a better way to translate this passage is this. Assuming that you heard him, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, Christianity is more than just a belief or a standard. But it certainly isn't less than that. And there are some things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes uh, to Timothy, this young pastor of a church, and here's what he says. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, what? To be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Now what is he going to say is necessary for those things to happen? Verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
So what is this saying? What it's saying is this, that apart from coming to the Father through Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. That's why Paul goes so far as to say that the truth is in Jesus. And understand that if you reject or remove any element of who Jesus is, you no longer have Christianity. So part of the reason that when we gather together, that we, that we recite creeds and confessions that Christians have been confessing together for thousands of years is because we constantly want to be reminding ourselves of the deep truths that we believe as Christians. That if Jesus' life was anything short of sinless perfection, he is not God. Do you understand the severity of that statement? If at any point Jesus failed the law, if at any point he sinned, he is not God. So do you understand then why it's so important to believe in the sinless life of Christ? Do you understand that if the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus was not necessary, or if it didn't accomplish its purpose, that there is no forgiveness to be found? In other words, if Jesus just died as an example of what it is to be a good person and to lay your life down for others, if that's all his death accomplished, it wasn't noble and it wasn't effectual, it was foolish. Do you understand that if Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, then you and I are still dead in our sins and he is no different than any other religious founder. But if those things are true, Jesus, then he is unique. So what does the truth in Jesus lead us to? Verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's describing here this twofold process where in the moment when you come to Jesus Christ, what has effectively happened is you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. And there is all kinds of ways where, where in the days and the months and the years following, we are continuing to put off that identity, to put off the markers of what defined us as non-believers in Jesus Christ and to put on those things that define us as Christ. I mean, there's an interesting balance in this. Because understand what the temptation is for many people. The temptation for some churches and for some individuals is to entirely emphasize putting off. And so what they'll do is they'll run through a list of demands that God has put on your life and they'll tell you you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't go here and you can't do this thing and you can't walk around with these people and you can't do all of these particular behaviors because this is what's going to set you apart is, is putting off of these things. And what you end up with is this kind of weird conglomeration of legalism mixed with, mixed with Christian identity. And there are other churches that almost completely ignore the idea that there is anything worth putting off in your life. And so they emphasize, start doing the right thing and start treating your neighbors well and care for these people and do all of the right things societally that we need to do to make a difference. Never even touching on the idea that there are elements of who you are that do not match up with who Christ has created you to be. So he's saying, put off not live according to the values of this world. Don't live according to the values of what once controlled you and put on in its place. Begin to do what God has called you to do. So think about what that means. It means to live as one who is not darkened, 
but enlightened. To live as one who is not alienated, but accepted. To live as one who is not callous, but receptive. To live as one who is not ignorant, but wise. And what's interesting is that the way that this is interpreted in our Bibles makes it read as a new command. But if you look at this, what it's actually, if you look at this in the original language, these are past tense actions. In other words, the idea of putting off and putting on, the Bible is saying these are things that already happened in your life. Now the effects of those decisions are far reaching and there's all kinds of ways in which we have to recommit ourselves to those ideals. But he's saying this is something that has happened to you. He is reminding you here of what, we are, of what we already know as Christians. So here's another way that you could read this verse rightly. You could read it this way. When you learned Christ, when you were taught in him, when you heard him, when you realized the truth in him, what you learned in that moment was to put on and to put off. In other words, to quote one author, to sin is spiritual amnesia. You have forgotten momentarily who you are. What does he say the method is to this putting off and this putting on? He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, what's so beautiful about the gospel that we believe is that God doesn't just give you instruction and leave you alone to figure it out. He says this only comes through through the renewing of your mind. That we need a continuous internal renewal of our outlook. So to illustrate it this way, what it means is that Jesus is not just a spoke in the wheel of your life. Along with your family and your friends and work and hobbies. But it means that he is the hub. That he is the center point upon which everything about you and in you is anchored. See, this is something that we need to consistently take before the Lord for examination and change. To trust in the acceptance of Christ and to depend on the continual work of the Holy Spirit. This is us, in a sense, agreeing with the work of, generation, work of regeneration rather that God has already done in us. It's the beginning of the work of integrity. And that word integrity in the literal sense, meaning that it is held together consistently. You're not a different person in one circumstance as you are in another. That the way that you are at church would not be unrecognizable to the people who are with you at home. That who you are at home is not a different person than who you are at work, which is a different person than who you are when you're with your friends. That there is an integrity in your life. Something that marks you consistently wherever you find yourself. And we'll look at that more at length next week. So practically, what does this look like? I'll give you two illustrations. The first one is from the life of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher, brilliant man. Um, he wrote, uh, wrote a, a great amount of work, wrote voluminously. And, and, and through the course of his life, he wrote 70 different resolutions that were going to define him as a person. These were things that he prayerfully considered, that he gave a lot of great thought and intention to. And he actually wrote those 70 resolutions down, defining and resolving what it was that he was going to do uh, as, convinced, uh, as the Holy Spirit convinced him of these things. So I'm not going to read you all 70, but I will read you three that I think illustrate these points. So here's one of his resolutions. He writes this, resolved never to give over, nor in the least 
to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. He's saying, I will identify those things in my life where my life is not meeting up to what God has called me to be, and I will continue to fight until I'm dead. That's the idea of putting off. What are those things in your heart that are evidence of a corrupted thought? And then he says this, resolved always to do that, which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. It's really a rewriting of the golden rule. This is the idea of putting on. He's saying there's going to be something new and different about my life. I'm going to interact with people in this way that cares for them and loves them. When I see someone treating somebody else well, I'm going to do that same kind of thing. I'm going to learn from those experiences. I'm going to put off the sin. I'm going to put on this way that I'm interacting with other people. And finally, he says this in one of his, one of his many other resolutions. He writes, resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long with the greatest openness I am capable of to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to Him, all my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance. He's talking about renewal of the mind. He's saying everything about who I am, all of the struggles I have, all the temptations I have, everything broken within me, and all of my hopes, all of my dreams, all of my aspirations, I am going to split it open and lay it wide before the Lord. I want God viewing and affecting every area of who I am, every interaction I have, every thought that goes through my mind. I want everything to be renewed. And here's how far the Ephesians took it as a second illustration. I mean, not only did the Ephesians take the transformation of the gospel in their life so seriously that they were willing to part with material possessions worth up to about $10 million in today's money, but understand that they did all of this while being ostracized from society. Because to follow Jesus Christ in this time was no small matter. You see this again in Acts chapter 19, but most workers at this time, most skilled workers, were members of trade guilds. So like today, you might identify with a particular union or a particular guild. You may have some sort of representation. And in this time, you would ally yourself with a particular trade guild. It was, it was how you got a job. It was how people knew you were trustworthy. It was how people knew you were skilled. It was something that people looked to to know that you were the kind of person they wanted to do their job. And each one of these trade guilds had a particular god that they worshipped. So if you're an iron worker, you might have your own God. If you're a farmer or a laborer, you might have your own God. If you're someone that's skilled in another area, you've got your own God that you worship and claim together with your coworkers. And if you refused to worship that God, you were not only considered a poor member of society, because think about it from their perspective. Who is this guy that thinks he doesn't need to worship with us? Who is it that thinks that he's got his own God? He's got this this one true God that he claims, this Jesus Christ. Who is this person? How arrogant of them to think that they don't need our God. Not only were you societally viewed in a poor light, but you were also viewed as a threat. Because what it meant was, in their thinking, maybe our God is going to stop blessing us. Because this guy refuses to worship. 
And so for many of these Christians, when they took their stand for Jesus Christ, when they followed Jesus Christ in salvation, when they lived out this truth of the gospel in their life, they were taking into their hands not only their material possessions that they were going to lose, but they were taking into their own hands their very income. They were saying, I might lose my job. I might lose my standing in society. This trade that I work in, that my father worked in, and my grandfather worked in, and my great-grandfather worked in, this thing that defines my whole lineage, potentially giving it up to follow Christ. So Christians were run out of their jobs. They lost their primary means of income. And as if that wasn't enough, in Acts chapter 19, what you see is that there were a group of silversmiths who suddenly had a lot less demand for their products because so many people were converting to Christianity. People weren't buying these little silver gods, these little silver idols that they had made to to Diana, to Artemis. And so the silversmiths got together and said, what is the deal with these Christians? Don't they realize that they're taking away our livelihood because people are turning away from Diana and turning to Jesus Christ? And so they began to riot and cause a ruckus in the streets. They began to turn the crowds against Christians. See, the Ephesian Christians knew well what they'd given up to follow Jesus. So what made it worth it? Well, aside from their personal walk with Christ, as if that weren't enough, we're told in Acts chapter 19 that by the time this church was two years old, according to Acts 19, all who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Think about this, a massive province, Asia Minor as we would know it today. What the Bible is saying is that there wasn't an adult left in that region who hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Christians were known for what they'd given up. And as if that wasn't enough, they were also known for what they put on. So we're told historically that the Christians understood the injustices of what was happening around them. Oftentimes in this, in, in this, um, in this particular point in history, uh, if a child was born, particularly a female child or a child with a disability, if a family didn't want that child, they would take it out into the woods, they would leave it on a stump for wild animals to come and eat. And so Christians would leave their homes and they'd go into the woods, these places where they knew that babies were typically left, and they would go out and adopt these children into their families. It's an example of putting on, right? See, what enables a church to put off the old man to the extent where they receive brutal treatment and persecution and yet continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel and be so loving and gracious and generous with their neighbors and with their persecutors that within two years, every person in Asia Minor knew about this obscure Galilean named Jesus. What happened is that their hearts and their minds were renewed in the spirit. That they were utterly dependent on the Christ that they had learned. That they were so aware of who they were in Jesus and how they were viewed by Jesus that they said along with Paul, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying 
to the good news of God's grace. See, when you understand what Jesus experienced for you, when you understand that Jesus Christ put off all the benefits and all the glory of being God and in its place put on the mantle of sin, when you understand that he took the brutality of the cross for you and for me to bring us into his family and to give us new life, there is something incredible that happens. The things that you once valued so highly begin to fade and pale in comparison. And things that once would have seemed foolish are now noble to give up for in the name of Jesus Christ. See, in the name of Jesus, his people were being transformed to emulate his life. Our prayer is that we as Disciples Church would be a people that are so basking and soaking in the wonder and the glory of the gospel that it affects every interaction, every conversation, and every decision. That just as in salvation we put off the old man and we're given the new man in its place, a new life, a new name, a new family, that in the very same sense we would be willing to give the life that we are still given for the sake of those that are around us? Would we pray seriously about what these things mean for our own hearts? What are the proverbial books that need to be burned in our lives? What are the things that we need to put on in proclaiming and caring, caring for the gospel in the lives of those around us? Let's be faithful to pray and consider those things. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the example of the early church. God, not a perfect example, certainly. We see the brokenness. There was a reason that this Ephesian church needed this reminder. And it's because that temptation existed to return to what was familiar, to return to what was comfortable. And Lord, we certainly understand that we are not beyond that very same temptation. But Lord, we pray that we would understand that because of the life we've been given through Jesus Christ, that there is a transformation that has taken place. And would our behavior and our lifestyle be, 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 begin to be born of that new life? Lord, allow us to uproot the idols in our hearts. Reveal those things to us so that our minds and our hearts can be renewed. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen.